Today's scripture readings come from Psalm 34, 15 through 22, 1 Kings 8, 22 through 30, 41 and 43, 41 through 43, and lastly, Ephesians 6, 10 through 18. Psalm 34, 15 through 22. The eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous, and God's ears are open to their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil, to erase the remembrance of them from the earth. The righteous cry out, and the Lord hears them and rescues them from all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those whose spirits are crushed. Many are the troubles of the righteous, but the Lord delivers them from them all. God will keep safe all their bones. Not one of them will be broken. Evil will bring death to the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be punished. O Lord, you redeem the life of your servants, and those who put their truth in you will not be condemned. 1 Kings 8.22-30 and 41-43 Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in front of the whole assembly of Israel and spread out his hands toward heaven and said, O Lord, God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth below. You who keep covenant and steadfast love with your servants who walk before you with all their heart. You have kept covenant with your servant David, my father. With your mouth you have promised, and with your hand you have fulfilled it. Now, O Lord, God of Israel, keep of your servant David, my father, the promises you made to him when you said, You shall never fail to have a successor to sit before me on the throne of Israel, if only your descendants are careful in all they do to walk before me faithfully as you have done. May your eyes be open toward this temple night and day, this place of which you said, my name shall be there, so that you will hear the prayer your servant prays towards this place. And when you hear, forgive, as for the foreigner who does not belong to your people, Israel, but has come from a distant land, because they will hear of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm. Do whatever the foreigner asks of you, so that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you, as do your own people Israel, and may know that this house I have built bears your name. Now reading from Ephesians 6, 10 through 18. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of God's mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of the dark world, and against spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything, to stand. Stand firm, then, with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, and put on the breastplate of righteousness as shoes for your feet, 
put on whatever will make you ready to proclaim the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. And pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. To all the saints gathered in this space and to all the saints gathered in your special place at home, may the Lord be with you. Let us pray. Holy God, we plead for your near and attentive presence, your companionship, your healing, right now, right here. Amen. For those of you who don't know me, I am Dale Glick. I first came to WCF 20 years ago as interim pastor. Later, after serving nine years as senior pastor, I officially retired in January 2018. Since then, I've done a 17-month commuting interim pastoral stint at Foster Mennonite Church in Elizabethtown, Pennsylvania. During this time, I also became the same age as Abraham when he was told to move to a new land. Earlier, I thought he was an old man when he did that. Not so much anymore. In addition, my wife, Twyla, after 30 years of teaching, retired from the Arlington public school system and put away her magic markers and big books. And somewhere in these recent months, we have all encountered the unexpected opportunities of navigating and surviving a world pandemic with the challenges of masking, physical distancing, vaccinations, quarantines, and a plethora of future uncertainties. In the Christian church year, we are deep into what is known as ordinary time. Ironically, it was Pentecost Sunday several months ago that launched this season called Ordinary. Then with the windy and fiery arrival of the Holy Spirit, God's transforming justice saturated those gathered each hearing the good news in their own language. Their lives, their worship, and their community were never the same until it was. For back then as now, when we are given the opportunity, we sadly resort to the status quo, routine, and what is familiar. God's transforming justice, like being born again, is not a one-and-done thing. For justice to be experienced, for transformation to be encountered, it needs to happen over and over and over again. The lectionary psalm for this Sunday, also used in our call to worship, offers reassurance to those caught in the crossfire of injustice. It confirms that brokenness in heart, spirit, and body is the reality of life. The psalmist observes that doing good and avoiding evil will not keep people of faith from affliction and suffering. Consequently, Psalm 34 does not offer unconditional promises by God of a life free of problems, especially a life that is lived in just relationships with one's neighbor. Yet we are promised the hope of God's near presence, 
a God who sees and hears even in the darkest of days caused by deep grief, injustice, grief, and loss. Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann writes in his book, Spirituality of the Psalms, the use of these psalms of darkness, such as Psalm 34, may be judged by the world to be acts of unfaith and failure. But for the trusting community, their use is an act of bold and transformed faith because it insists that the world must be experienced as it really is and not in some pretended way. Such a faith insists that all experiences are subject to interactive dialogue with God. Nothing is out of bounds, nothing precluded or inappropriate. To withhold parts of life from conversation with God is in fact to withhold parts of life from the sovereignty of God. Our God is unshockable and knows us better than we know ourselves and yearns for us to share every aspect of our life with God. And our God has a special love and tenderness for those who are brokenhearted and are beaten down by life or crushed by people who act without counting the cost of their actions to others. This, my friends, is God's transforming justice. In the Old Testament reading for today, remember that First and Second Kings stretch from the end of David's life through the construction of the temple through a series of hereditary monarchs involved in intrigue, murder, and unfaithfulness to God, and finally to the destruction of the temple and life in exile, including the Ark of the Covenant. Much of chapter 8 of 1 Kings contains Solomon's prayer of dedication and blessing for the newly built temple and the people of Israel. Solomon asks for divine guidance and forgiveness. He acknowledges humanity's inability to contain God or to have all the answers. But surprisingly, right in the midst of this glorious dedication liturgy, geared primarily to the people of Israel, is a clarion call to be attentive to the foreigner, to the stranger, to the other. Just as we easily forget the grandmothers and grandfathers on whose shoulders today's prophets stand, so we often neglect the events that give rise to more recent and public calls for righteousness and justice for the foreigner or the other. Not only then does this text call us to worship, it calls us to model God's transformational justice and inclusive justice. In our corporate worship, Framed in transformational justice, we remember the nature of God. We remember the vastness of God. But the human energy we forge against injustice and oppression, no matter how passionate, does have a limit. On our own, we weaken and fail. The power of evil supersedes human will. Good-hearted religious people can overcommit to good causes. In our peace and justice efforts, we, the congregation, must be constantly reminded never to forget the necessity of divine companionship. Regular worship counteracts our tendency to forgetfulness. In worship, we become more than we were, 
In worship, when we pray for a right spirit within us, we open ourselves to being shaped into a community of righteous power, better able to overcome the evils of injustice and oppression. Worship energizes us with Holy Spirit power. Yes, that same Holy Spirit power on the day of Pentecost, reminding us that we belong to God as do all people created in the image of God to whose purposes we have committed our lives. In keeping with today's dual themes of worship and community, in the context of God's transforming justice, it is this New Testament reading which brings it all home. Finally, Paul proclaims, be empowered with the strength of God's own power. The rousing call to battle, to properly arm ourselves, to put on God's whole armor, is the striking image of the church engaged at the center of God's saving action in the struggle against the cosmic powers. However, Paul's military imagery and his summons to battle in Ephesians 6 makes this passage one of the more frequently misinterpreted. On one hand, it makes a lot of us nervous who are committed to peacemaking and nonviolent responses to societal situations. Yet other believers seem to be enamored by these military references and tend to think of Christianity as a kind of warfare declared on other religions. Can you say Islam? Or even on other believers? Can you say cultural wars? Sadly, all of us continue to witness the devastating effects of war on those who wage it. Think Afghanistan. We've all observed the abuses of Paul's imagery here producing unfortunate wars like the Crusades. Christians' suspicion and love of military imagery compels us to carefully and trustworthy interpretation and application of this passage. This morning I'm offering four understandings or realities of God's transforming justice. First, we are called to imitate God, the divine warrior. Such a summons to put on God's whole armor means we are divinely empowered because it is God alone who empowers. Everything about the origin of the biblical motif of God, the divine warrior, tells us that this is not a defensive struggle for God, nor is it only a mop-up after the victory has been won. Yes, the resurrection of Christ means the evil cosmic powers are defeated. Yes, the final victory is assured. But such assurance does not downplay the present and future struggle for our salvation and the salvation of our world. These words offer courage for the struggle, the battle. The battle is real, even if the outcome is assured. The enemy is real, even if not blood and flesh. The armor and weapons are real, even if they are only the persistent and prayerful exercise of truth, justice, peace, faith, salvation, and the word of God. A second reality, the enemy is the devil and his cronies. 
Paul is very clear. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Can you say other Christians, races, faiths, cultures, orientations? It is against the rulers, authorities, powers of this dark world, and spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. To be sure, while at no time in human history have God's people been immune from attack, Paul insists that our our attackers don't sound or look like any soldiers we've ever seen, heard, or read about. Those who have declared war on God's adopted children aren't, in fact, human. They're the evil one and his allies. So while the assailants of God's people may look human, they at least in part attacked us because Satan and his thugs motivate them. As Paul describes them, they are elusive, tenacious, and dangerous, who represent systems and structures and habits that are racist, militarist, misogynist, and materialist. While they are finite, they seem virtually unbeatable. But with the resurrection story and in the Revelation account, we know for certain that the ultimate battle is already won. Satan is dead in the water. A third understanding. The whole armor of God is for the whole community of faith. Unfortunately, some scholars and Christians conclude that this text is all about a spiritual struggle on the part of individual believers and has little or no connection to the church over against the political realities of Paul's world or our world. Paul's emphasis and focus in Ephesians is the church, the body of Christ, gifted for the building up of the community of Christ. The putting on of God's armor is directed to the faith community, the collective communal people of God, acting as a unified divine force. And in a delightfully profound and poignant image, the church community, having put on the whole armor of God, is to stand. We don't shout, charge, attack, or go on the offensive. This armor nowhere implies that God or we arm ourselves to terrorize or intimidate. Nor does it give permission to beat each other over the head with our Bibles or to exclude others with different beliefs and understandings of the biblical story. We are to stand, according to Paul, and if you're looking for a sermon title this morning, just don't do something, stand. Verse 11, take your stand, church, against the schemes and strategies of the devil. Verse 13, you people of God, stand firm on that day. Verse 14, Stand, community of faith, and put on the armor of God. Imagine and visualize the whole community of faith decked out with God's whole armor standing. Christ has already defeated the evil one. God's people just have to stand their ground with resilience, resistance, courage, and prayer. In ancient warfare, The soldiers standing at the end of battle 
was a sign of strength, showing themselves to be victorious. It is ultimately victorious standing. The fourth reality. God's armor is transformational justice. When most people say, we want justice, they seem to imply that bad deeds must be punished or that vengeance is the only solution, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But Jesus says that's simply not the case with God. God's transformational justice is far more comprehensive and complicated than our casual reference to justice and plea for vengeance where wrongs will be made right. Justice served may indeed not be justice at all from a biblical perspective where God's justice is an expression of total, unconditional, steadfast love. More specifically, I believe God's transformational justice is multidimensional. Let me identify four aspects or four dimensions of God's transformational justice. In the first place, it is justice that is communal. The struggle against the myriad of powers, great and small, personal and impersonal, individual and systemic, requires a corporate communal response in the pursuit of righteousness and justice. No one individual can do battle against the cosmic evil powers themselves. So the power and armor of God, worn by those who are in and with Christ, make the church more than a match for all the powers resisting God's saving designs for the cosmos. The faithful community doing justice is to stand. But the faithful community is also to do God's work, to act as the Messiah's body, displaying virtues and actions of truth slash honesty, justice slash righteousness, peace slash shalom, faithfulness slash solidarity, salvation slash liberation, the word of God slash good news, and prayer slash relationship. A second dimension of God's transformational justice is that justice is systemic. The concept of critical race theory, CRT, has been a flashpoint of political divide and angst, particularly in recent months. CRT, around since about the 1980s, examines social, cultural, and legal, and sometimes religious issues primarily as they relate to race and racism in the United States. Its basic tenets include that racism and disparate racial outcomes are the result of complex changing and other social constructs and institutional dynamics rather than explicit and institutional prejudice in just individuals. Such self-reflection can be very instructive, especially as white people confront white privilege and white supremacy. So what has been happening to our black sisters and brothers is not just a couple of police officers being bad apples, it's ugly, pervasive racism and systemic oppression. God's transformational justice is the systemic fair treatment of everyone, regardless of race, to create equitable opportunities 
and outcomes for all. As Kay Jackson, senior director of the organization Race Forward believes, every day provides us with a thousand different opportunities to choose racial justice. A third dimension, a justice that is nonviolent. The author of Ephesians makes clear that God's armor is both metaphorical and real. The armor works as a metaphor because in reality, truth and justice and peace, faithfulness, the word of God and prayer are the effective means by which the powers are overcome. The powers are vanquished through the exercise of these virtues and actions, not because God's church is wearing the elements of armor. In other words, we obviously don't have on our actual possession swords and helmets and breastplates and shields. The believers in God's armor are only clad in truth, justice, faith, and salvation, ready to announce peace while proclaiming the word of God. And bottom line, none of God's armor implies or suggests violence or attack. A fourth dimension, this is a justice that is rooted in forgiveness. Jonathan Richardson, United Methodist pastor in New Orleans, believes that followers of Jesus affirm and proclaim the importance of justice, but wonders if we are really falling short of our full witness. It is his belief that Christians engaged in justice work must first and foremost be peacemakers. But Christian peacemaking begins with forgiveness. Justice seeking alone, he asserts, without a Christian orientation to peacemaking and forgiveness will not be sufficient. Unfortunately, many Christians have frequently dismissed Jesus' imperative of forgiveness as impractical or, or meaningless. But since Christianity is rooted in the historical claims about Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, Christian peacemakers cannot deny history or forget it. Peace and forgiveness can only come with a true accounting of history. So forgiveness is one of the ways that Christians enter into engagement, one might even say conflict, with their enemies. Nonviolent protests are an excellent example of this engagement. The conflict is not an attempt to annihilate the enemy, think the defensive nature of God's armor, which would be a form of forgetting. Forgiveness is not the denial of history. It looks directly at the need for forgiveness and engages directly those who have committed and perpetuated social, political, systemic, and personal evils. In Christian peacemaking, the offering of forgiveness exposes the lies inherent in the murder of black people. They were not killed, black people were not killed, as the lies go, because police officers were keeping the peace, or because addiction is a form of moral failure, or because putting black people behind bars makes us safe. Christians use forgiveness to assert the power and possibility of another way of being in relation with one another, one that has redemption and reconciliation at its very root. Forgiveness, then, my friends, in this sense, is not irrelevant. 
It is a matter of revelation. Once this is acknowledged, our understanding of peacemaking shifts from the work of potentially heroic individuals to the work of ordinary humans who are themselves forgiven. And that, my sisters and brothers, makes sense to a people whose redemption and salvation are not an idea, but a person. Thus, the enemy is invited into the work of peace as a friend who is also forgiven. Christians are able to love our enemy in this way because our enemy does not define us. We are both defined by God. Christian forgiveness then as a social ethic often offers something that society cannot get without, the witness of the church. You do not necessarily need the church or religion to, to participate in acts of justice. An appeal to the rule of law and the language of individual rights may be enough to move the needle of the American democratic public toward a more just society. It cannot, however, move the needle toward a more beloved one. The practice of Christian forgiveness by forgiven people offers a distinctive witness the world cannot do without. Only then can we experience and practice God's transforming justice, justice that is communal, systemic, nonviolent, and rooted in forgiveness. Finally, my sisters and brothers, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of God's mighty power. Put on the whole armor of God. And just don't do something. Stand. Amen and amen. amen.